For Judaism, repentance is a triumph of the human spirit. God demands repentance of mankind, but God also has faith that mankind is capable of achieving it. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 59. Repentance, grade inflation, and self-affirmation. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In his memoir about attending Harvard, Ross Douthat describes the one member of the faculty who had long been a critic of the grading policies in the university, Harvey Mansfield. So tough was Mansfield as a grader that he was known by the nickname Harvey C-minus Mansfield. But suddenly, Mansfield announced that he had decided that being the one tough grader left at Harvard unfairly penalized the students for taking a class with him. He therefore, as Douthat describes, announced a new policy. He would give his students two grades, an official one and a private one. He said, I have decided that this semester I will issue two grades to each of you. The first will be the grade that you actually deserve, a C for mediocre work, a B for good work, and an A for excellence. This one will be issued to you alone. Mansfield added that the second grade computed at semester's end will be your uh, ironic grade. Ironic in this case being a word used to mean lying. And it will be computed on a scale that takes as its mean the average Harvard grade. That's what Mansfield said. And he concluded by adding that this higher grade will be sent to the registrar's office and it will appear on your transcript. It will be your public grade, you might say, and it will ensure that you will not be penalized for taking a class with me. And of course, only you will know whether you actually deserve it. Today, ladies and gentlemen, let us examine what it means to grade ourselves and whether giving ourselves an honest grade, as difficult as it may be, may actually become the most self-affirming thing that we can do. In some of his last words to the people of Israel, Moses joins together two different but related concepts. The first is the notion of repentance. Describing the punishments that will come upon Israel after disobedience, Moses also describes the possibility of repentance and forgiveness. Chapter 30, verse 2, And thou shalt return to the Lord thy God and hearken to his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children with all thy heart and with all thy soul. The Hebrew word for repentance, deriving from this verse and others, means Return to God. Immediately after, Moses delivers one of the most famous sentences in the Torah, describing the choice facing Israel between goodness and sin, right and wrong. Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before thee life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life that thou mayst live, thou and thy children. Uvacharta bachayim. Therefore, choose life. We have the ability to choose and to choose life. For Maimonides, who codified the central doctrines of Judaism, it is the belief in free will that makes all of Judaism and its commandments possible. He cites our verse in his Code of Law, quote, And this matter is a great and component part, the very pillar of the Torah and its precepts. Even as it is said, See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. And it is moreover written, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and curse. This is as if saying, Power is in your hand, and whatever human activity man may be inclined to carry on, he has a free will to elect either good or evil. Interestingly, Maimonides chose to place his discussion about free will 
not in the opening section of his Code of Law, where the philosophical principles of Judaism are delineated, but rather in his laws of repentance, just as free will and repentance are joined in Moses' words. And this, I think, points to something very deep, to the way that repentance is approached by Judaism, and to the way that the Jewish high holidays are structured. Those of you that join me for my special Bible 365 pre-high holiday discussion know what I believe Rosh Hashanah is really about, and that, of course, is me showing off my exotic shofar collection. And, as I mentioned in my discussion about my shofars with Eric Cohn, the rabbis of the Talmud originally debated which sort of animal horn would be best to blow on the new year. According to one opinion, the more twisted or curved a shofar is, the better. According to another approach, the straighter a shofar is, the more ideal it is for this ritual. What difference does it make whether a shofar is twisted or straight? The Talmud explains that the argument embodies a debate regarding the proper emotional posture on Rosh Hashanah. The curved or twisted shofar depicts the Jew engaged in teshuvah, bent over, humble, in full awareness of his or her flaws and misdeeds. And, after all, this day is considered one of judgment. How, then, can we not cower and quiver contritely, acknowledging all our imperfections? The other opinion, however, insists that the straight shofar is more appropriate, for it embodies the human being standing upright, self-affirming, confident, while praying in the presence of the divine. And this latter explanation points to another theme of this day. Rosh Hashanah is marked by Jews as the anniversary of the creation of the world, and in particular the creation of mankind in the image of God. What does it mean to be created in God's image? The great exegete Ovadia Sforno explains that mankind is akin to the Almighty because, in his words, Man can be compared to God, for man operates through free will. This is what it means to be created in God's image. And if we celebrate this at the beginning of the Days of Awe, it is because only when we have a true awareness of our moral capacity can repentance take place. Moses and Moses Maimonides join repentance and free will because the two must go hand in hand. Just as Rosh Hashanah in the Jewish calendar precedes the Day of Atonement in order to emphasize how the creation of mankind in God's image is essential to the achieving of atonement. For if we are not free, then we have nothing for which to atone, nor can we undo what we have done. If, however, we are free, then on the one hand we are responsible, we are at fault for our misdeeds, but on the other hand we are also able to change, to progress, to repent. We are created in the image of God, we are endowed with free will, with the awesome ability to fix our flaws, to change our course, to straighten what was made crooked. In other words, The two themes of Rosh Hashanah, repentance on the one hand and the greatness of man on the other, are to be taken in tandem, just as the respective symbolism of the two possible horns must always go hand in hand. Humble teshuvah, contrite confession, remorseful repentance is only possible because of the spiritual capacity that we have been granted by God. Thus, in returning to free will as the Torah of Moses comes to a close, Moses himself returns to what lies at the very origin of Judaism itself. For we saw, some weeks ago, Thomas Kael's contention that Abraham's original journey in response to the call of God was revolutionary because it 
brought the very possibility of freedom into being. Abraham, Cahill argued, lived in a time where all believed that life on earth imitated that which was above, the endless cycles of the stars. No true change, it was thought, was possible. And that is why, Cahill argued, words such as progress and hope are the gifts of the Jews. In speaking about how important free will is to Judaism, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs liked to quote Isaac Bashevis Singer, who famously said, We have to believe in free will. We have no choice. But in a brilliant bit of homiletics, Rabbi Sachs also built on Cahill's book and interpreted the Almighty's instruction to Abraham, leave your land, your birthplace, and your father's house, as a response to three modern, influential individuals of Jewish descent, Spinoza, Marx, and Freud. In Rabbi Sachs's words, quote, Marx said that human beings are determined by the play of economic forces, by class differences, by who owns land. Therefore God said to Abraham, Lech lecha me'artzacha, leave the land. Spinoza said that human beings are determined by the circumstances of their birth, by what today we would call genetic instincts, and therefore God said to Abraham, leave moladetacha, the place of your birth. Freud, or by Sachs continued, said that human beings are determined by our early childhood experiences, and therefore God said to Abraham, leave your father's house. Judaism's point, Rabbi Sachs continued, is that every attempt to reduce human behavior to science or to pseudoscience is a failure to understand the nature of human freedom, of human agency, of human responsibility. Every single attempt, sociobiological, genetic, etc., and they are published by the hundred every single year, represents the failure to distinguish between phenomena whose causes lie in the past and human behavior which is oriented toward the future. A future, Rabbi Sachs said, which only exists because I can imagine it. And because I can imagine it, I can choose to bring it about. That, Rabbi Sachs continued, is in principle not subject to scientific causal analysis, and that, he concluded, is the root of human freedom. Because human beings are free, therefore we are not condemned to eternal recurrence. We can act differently today from the way we did yesterday, in small ways individually, in very big ways collectively. Because we can change ourselves, we can change the world. End quote. Thus, for Judaism, Repentance is a triumph of the human spirit. God demands repentance of mankind, but God also has faith that mankind is capable of achieving it. Every step of the repentance process, confessing and recognizing our past misdeeds and changing our ways, can only begin in the understanding of what we are capable and through realizing that we have not lived up fully to those capabilities. Moses, therefore, follows his discussion of repentance with emphasizing the moral capacity of humanity. Again, in chapter 30, verse 11 and 14, For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not too hard for thee, neither is it far off, but the word is very close to thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayst do it. It is perhaps for this reason that some Jewish communities had the custom of proclaiming the Yom Kippur confessional liturgy, Ashamnu, we are guilty not in sadness, but in joy. For there is no guilt without freedom. The very freedom that allows for guilt also allows for change, for improvement. And what this means is that when it comes to our own lives, having the courage to give ourselves grades, to see where we can improve morally and spiritually, can actually allow us to discover untapped resources within ourselves. A famous anecdote is told by Winston Lord, who worked in the State Department as a speechwriter for Henry Kissinger. Lord said, I would go in with a draft of the speech. He called me in the next day and said, Is this the best you can do? I said, Henry, I thought so, but I'll try again. 
So I go back in a few days, another draft. He called me in the next day and he said, are you sure this is the best you can do? I said, well, I really thought so. I'll try one more time. Anyway, this went on eight times, eight drafts. Each time he said, is this the best you can do? So I went in there with a ninth draft. And when he called me in the next day and asked me that same question, I really got exasperated. And I said, Henry, I've beaten my brains out. This is the ninth draft. I know it's the best I can do. I can't possibly improve one more word. He then looked at me and said, in that case, now I'll actually read it. To know that we are guilty of not doing better is to know that we could have done better. And to know that we could have done better is to affirm that we can do better. In Deuteronomy 28.13, Moses promises Israel that if it obeys God's commandments, then the Lord will make thee the head and not the tail. But Moses adds, in a case of disobedience, then Israel will be overcome by its enemies. And, Moses says in verse 44, he, the enemy, shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. Every Rosh Hashanah, Jews pun off these verses in praying to God, that in the year to come, we should be a head and not a tail. My grandfather, who was deeply interested in human psychology, explained the prayer as follows. The head, he said, or the mind or the brain, is the source of the active stimuli in the body. The entire rest of our physiology moves because it is responding to signals from the head. And so, my grandfather said, on Rosh Hashanah, we are offered a choice. We can be a tail wagged by our environs, continuing on the same path as last year, responding to the stimulus of society. Or we can be the head. We can initiate actions. We can make free decisions that will send moral signals reverberating throughout our lives as a brain signals reverberate throughout the body. Thus, the celebration of free will on Rosh Hashanah calls us to ponder what decisions we make with our own minds. An old story about the baseball player Dizzy Dean describes him being hit on the head by a ball in the World Series of 1934 and later telling the reporters, they x-rayed my head and found nothing. A call to atonement is a call to examine our heads, ourselves, our moral capacity as human beings. It was my grandfather who further noted that the phrase Rosh Hashanah literally means not the new year, but the head of the year. Because just as decisions that originate in the head reverberate throughout one's body, so too decisions formed on Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, have the ability to reverberate and impact the rest of our year. Ladies and gentlemen, we release this podcast at the beginning of the year. Let us ask ourselves, what is the best that we can do? And using our free will, let us strive to do just that. And may God grant us a year in which we truly come out ahead. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.